This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Abby Chandler to the program. How you doing, Abby? Good. How are you? Okay. Abby Chandler is a history professor at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell. Uh, she is author of, of a book which is called Law and Sexual Misconduct in New England, 1650 to 1750. Uh, and that sounded like a, such an interesting topic to me, but I hate to pull the punch bowl as the party's just starting. It, it sounds as if you're not as interested in the sex angle on this story as you are in the law itself. Yes, that is accurate. I tend to think of myself as a legal scholar first. And so both this first book, looking at the evolution of sexual misconduct trials and English law in New England, and the book I've just started, are both using that legal history lens to look at much wider events. And one of your goals, or, or you, you want to take a look at whether the New England colonies, as they kind of, I don't know what, stagger or march toward revolution, are getting more or, or less like England in terms of their legal systems? That's certainly an interest of mine. Another one, and this comes from the perspective of somebody who grew up in New England, who's lived in northern New England. I've spent a lot of my life in Maine. I've spent a lot of my life in Massachusetts. And you look at the wider historiography of colonial New England, and it often focuses very much on the southern New England colonies, particularly Massachusetts. And there's often this assumption that New England was a uniform region, that you could talk about Massachusetts, and that would sum up everyone else. But Again, growing up here, and then as I delved deeper into the research, what fascinated me was that New England was a very diverse region. And so certainly Massachusetts becomes more English as they approach the Revolution. Rhode Island and Maine started out with legal systems that were most, much closer to England from day one, and that was very important to both of those colonies. And so that diversity in what we think of as a very homogenous region really is what I think drew me to this particular topic and then kept me going with it. For <laughs> okay. And the, the book focuses on prosecution of sexual misconduct. Why uh, is sexual misconduct important? I think it's important for looking at law, for looking at politics, because it's a crime that is almost universally prosecuted in the early modern period in Europe, in Britain, and throughout the colonies established in the Americas by all of these European countries. The root of it often is not so much the issue of the moral questions of should you be having sex out of wedlock, but the question of if you have sex out of wedlock, what does that mean? If there are illegitimate children, what do we do with them? How do we support them? Where do we put them? And so those questions are common to almost every European colony throughout the Americas. And it's also something that affects men, affects women. And so for looking at larger issues of politics, larger issues of law, larger issues of society, sexual misconduct trials gave me a source base that gave 
large extent allowed me to look at how do women feel about the anglization of their legal system and their political system. And that is a question that nobody has really um, asked very much. Or if they've asked that, there's always the question, well, how do you study what women think about political change in a time period in which women are not part of the mainstream political process? And that was where I found these trials particularly helpful. And the cases you deal with involve men and women, I mean, heterosexual sex. I mean, you, you don't take up the, the subject of what we would call gay sex or a prosecution uh, in connection with that? My wider research looked at trials which involve same-sex couples. I don't believe there were any in the final draft of the book. Um, there certainly were cases, certainly people in recent years have written about those cases, and they wound up getting dropped from the final manuscript simply because there there weren't enough of them to tell that much of, of the story of this the wider political changes I was looking at. And, yeah, they're very infrequent, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. And um, among the cases you do uh, take up... Uh, two widows in Essex County, Massachusetts, and um, and I believe one was, uh, you know, they're in, in somewhat different time periods showing kind of an evolution of the, the legal system. Yes, there's a about a 30-year gap between them. The first of the two of them is a woman named Deborah Proctor, and if that name is sounding familiar, it's because she's John Proctor's sister-in-law. Deborah was married to Benjamin Proctor, who was John Proctor's brother, and Benjamin dies, leaving Deborah a widow with four children. She and the children live on Hog Island, which is off of Ipswich, Massachusetts. Rather ironically, that's where the mid-90s version of The Crucible was filmed, and that struck me that there have apparently always been Proctors on Hog Island. But anyway, I digress. Mm -hmm. And they share this island with the Choate family, who were related to the Proctors by marriage. Thomas Choate owns the island. Shortly after the Salem witch trials, he invited Benjamin and Deborah to come and live there with their family. And now Benjamin is dead. Deborah is a widow. And she has a 28-year-old daughter named Martha, who is pregnant out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. And the two issues when a woman is pregnant out of wedlock in all of the jurisdictions that I looked at are, number one, she will have to stand trial on fornication and bastardy charges. Number two, they need to legally determine who the father is because under a 1668 Massachusetts law, men who father children out of wedlock are responsible for paying child support for them. And this question of how do you legally determine a father when you don't have DNA is one that's hugely important, again, across early modern Europe. The system that is used in Europe, is used in England, is used in many of these colonies established in the Americas, requires that when the unwed woman gives birth, her midwife is required to ask her throughout her labor who the father of the child is. And there's a lot of these cases in Essex County which the midwife's testimony survived. Hmm. And just about every case that I could find, woman names the father before her midwife. Midwife testifies in court that that's who the father was. 
and that man is then convicted. So it's as close to a guaranteed foolproof way of having a man um, convicted on paternity charges. And again, Martha Proctor is pregnant, and they need to figure out who the father is. Well, Martha refuses to name a father. She actually goes through her entire labor without naming a father, which is unusual. But she hints during the labor that the father was Thomas Choate. And Deborah Proctor winds up writing a 2,000-word long statement describing the series of events whereby Thomas Choate, she implies that he raped her daughter, or certainly the implication is that it was not consensual. And from there, Thomas Choate tried to bribe Martha that she would not name him as the father of her child. Thomas Choate tried to kill Deborah. Thomas Choate does not come off as a particularly pleasant person in the course of this document. And Deborah issues this document. And what struck me as I was working my way through that particular trial is that Deborah is getting legal advice from Francis Wainwright, who's a justice in the, for the Essex County court system, who's another of her brother-in-laws. So when she needs help, she goes to the justice with whom she has a connection. Thomas, in the meantime, is talking to another justice named Samuel Appleton, and I've never been able to figure out what the connection is between them, but I'm assuming there's some form of connection. So each of them is going to their respective justices seeking legal advice. And this was how the Massachusetts legal system was intended to work when it was set up in the 1630s and 1640s by John Winthrop and the other founders of Massachusetts Bay. They did not approve of attorneys, they actually made it illegal to have them in the colony, and they really encouraged their justices of the peace to serve as justices, but also as legal counsel. If you have a problem, you're supposed to go to your local justice and seek advice from them. And this mm. is what Thomas and Deborah are both doing. In the end, Thomas is acquitted, I think really because Martha did not name him as, a fa- as the father of her child. It's mm-hmm. hard to convict a man if there is no testimony from the mother during the birth. Mm. And I don't know what happened to the child. I don't even know if the child was a boy or a girl, and that's very common. There's a lot of illegitimate, unnamed, illegitimate children in the colonial period who just fall through the cracks. There mm-hmm. is no way of tracing them. Anyway, so that's the Thomas Choate, Martha sure. Proctor... Yeah. Case. And let me, if I could just follow up a, a bit on that, the uh, the point of uh, not having attorneys, in other words, uh, neither the, the woman trying to prove paternity or the man trying to defend himself or the woman's mother um, paid these people, right? You, you, you got this no. advice for free. Yes, you did. And, and that's what the uh, founders of the Massachusetts colony wanted to avoid, was having people that you paid for legal advice, you know, kind of the hired gun approach that we are so yeah. familiar with today. They felt that, uh, well, I mean, there is in our culture, I mean, it's still there today, that distrust of lawyers. Oh, yeah. And we know it existed in that time period, and the Puritans, in their efforts to pur- create a purified society, a perfect city-on-a-hill society, thought, okay, we're going to do away with lawyers. Mm-hmm. And um, instead, your justice will be your legal counsel before the trial and your justice during the trial. 
And Choate, the man who was involved in this, he's a prominent person in, in the colony? He's a very prominent person, and he's from a very prominent family. And there's still echoes of that lingering in contemporary Ipswich. Hog Island is known today as Choate Island. The Choate descendants of the 19th century felt that the Hog Island just was not a respectable name. They changed, so they have legally have the island's name changed to Choate Island. There's still a Choate Bridge in downtown Ipswich. So you can still find echoes of that name and that family, even in the contemporary landscape. And the Proctor family, and you had said it, and it went over, I, I just didn't understand it, so it's one of my, um, well, it's a stupid question, but what is it that the Pro, the name Proctor is associated with the Salem witch trials, or what, what's the connection that, with oh, the name? Oh, I'm sorry. John Proctor is probably most famous because for being the central character in Arthur Miller's *The Crucible*. Ah, okay. So, but and he was a—that was a name taken from history. I mean, yes. Uh, yeah, Miller didn't um, just make it up. Real life, John Proctor, brother to Benjamin Proctor, brother-in-law to Deborah Proctor, will or was rather um, was hanged for witchcraft in the wake of the Salem witch trials. His wife Elizabeth was accused, but eventually acquitted. We're talking with Abby Chandler, history professor, University of Massachusetts in Lowell, author of the book Law and Sexual Misconduct in New England, 1650 to 1750. Uh, another case you, you deal with in the book, also in Essex County, uh, Massachusetts, uh, comes, you said, some 30 years later? Comes some 30 years later. And one of the massive changes that happens in Massachusetts is in 1692, Massachusetts Bay gets a new charter. And they completely reconfigure their legal system. And their new legal system is, in many respects, a much more anglicized legal system. And one of the things that England mandates is that they now have to legalize paid legal counsel. You can have lawyers now in Massachusetts. And okay. granted, that had happened even before the proctor Cho trial, which took place in 1705. But it seems to have taken a couple of decades, the change seems to have taken a couple decades to work its way through the system, which in a lot of ways makes sense. So that as you come into the 1720s, as you come into the 1730s, having paid legal counsel is becoming a normal way of life in Massachusetts. And the Proctor-Choate trial was one I actually originally worked on in my dissertation. The time period for my dissertation stopped in 1718. When I was revising it into a book, I decided to take it up to 1750, which meant that I had another 32 years of research to do. And as I was working on that, that was really what struck me is how different the post set really 1715, 1720 trials were from the earlier ones. So moving forward into the 1730s, we have another Essex County widow, and her name is Martha Lynch, and her husband was Irish. I don't know what her cultural background was. I think it was English, but whatever the case, her husband was Irish. He has, is dead, and she has a daughter named Elizabeth who is pregnant out of wedlock. And this time around, Martha Lynch, instead of going to her 
local justice to ask for advice, instead hires a attorney, a man named Mr. Dodge, who's from a very prominent Beverly family. And again, the name Dodge is still present in the Beverly landscape. I remember going to see Christmas lights on Dodge Row as a child growing up in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. And what he does is to go to Jonathan Gilbert, the man who'd fathered her daughter's child, and negotiate a deal. Gilbert will not have Jonathan Gilbert will not have to go to court. He will not have to suffer the humiliation of a public court trial, which is increasingly an option for men. However, Gilbert will pay Martha and Elizabeth Lynch a lump sum of 20 pounds child support. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, okay, what does that mean, 20 pounds? At that mm-hmm. point in time, the going rate for child support for an illegitimate child was about three shillings a week. And I worked out that 20 pounds was about the equivalent of two years' worth of child support payments. That said, the Essex County court system does not specify you have been convicted for fathering a child, you have to pay child support. They don't say how long you have to keep up the child support payments, but I did find several petitions from men after a year or so saying, well, I've been paying the child support and I don't want to do it anymore. And the court usually lets them off. A question for a book that I don't want to write, but I hope somebody does, is what happens if it even can be written, what happens to the illegitimate children when their child support is cut off after a year? But that's a digression. So the widow Lynch has taken advantage of the fact that she has the services of an attorney available, and he negotiates this settlement, and they get their lump sum. Elizabeth turns around and stands trial for um, fornication and bastardy, and it's a very normal, routine trial. And I thought a lot of so was working on revising the dissertation into a book about these two widows. And each of them is taking advantage of the legal system that is available to them. Deborah talks to her brother-in-law, Francis Wainwright, Justice, and Martha Lynch hires an attorney. But one of the things that I also looked at with this book is what effect does your social class have on how you negotiate this legal system. And one of the other things that I've looked at, that other scholars have looked at, is were all Massachusetts Bay justices of the peace available to all colonists on the same level? Because another fatherless daughter who I looked at was Elizabeth Sessions, who was pregnant out of wedlock in Andover, Massachusetts, somewhat interestingly pregnant by probably by one of my ancestors since my family was from Andover. And Elizabeth Sessions was from a very poor family, and her mother doesn't appear in the trial at all. And Elizabeth is pregnant out of wedlock, and she has nobody to talk to, nobody to support her. And the question I was left with is, does being able to go to your local justice only work if you were a person who has the social connections to a justice to be able to say, I need some help here? Because mm-hmm. it's abundantly clear that Elizabeth Sessions and her mother did not feel comfortable talking to Nathaniel Saltonstall, who's the justice who handles that trial. She's really on her own. Mm-hmm. And 
the widow Lynch fascinated me because she was married to an Irish man, and her daughter Elizabeth will go on to marry a colonist other than the man who got her pregnant, who also was Irish. And if Elizabeth Lynch will go on and marry an Irish man, even 10 years or so after her father had died, clearly the Lynch family is still part of a Irish community in the Beverly area. The Lynch family is clearly on the edge of society. Mm-hmm. If the Lynches had been dealing with this situation 30 years earlier, would they have been in the same position as Elizabeth Sessions, in which there is no legal system to support them? In short, the justices only help you if you are of an upper socioeconomic status. And so as I looked at what does it mean to have an anglicized Massachusetts, I was really fascinated by this figure of Martha Lynch, who had no issue with hiring an attorney, but the attorney she hires is from a prominent family. His father and grandfather were justices. And so this is the final question I'm left with. Would the Dodge family have helped Martha Lynch 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier? And I'm not sure that they would have. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for and, Martha, sorry, was the accusation no, of improvement. Uh, w- one question I have, you mentioned, in, maybe even in the first case, but in this case involving uh, the Lynches uh, in Essex County, that Elizabeth Lynch is t- tried for fornication and bastardy. Was she convicted? And what did what happened to her if she were convicted of that? She was, all three of these women, Elizabeth Lynch, Elizabeth Sessions, Martha Proctor were convicted on fornication and bastardy charges. If you're pregnant, there's no way around that. It's hard to claim you're innocent in that case. And if you were convicted on those charges, and thousands of women were, the usual punishment for that is to say you will either be whipped maybe five times, maybe ten times it fluctuates, or you will have to pay a fine. Unfortunately, none of the trial records record if the people who were given a choice, which one they chose. So I have no way of knowing. My guess is the more financially stable colonists were choosing to pay the fine, and the poorer ones were choosing to be whipped. Hmm. Abby Chandler uh, joining us, author of a book, uh, called Law and Sexual Misconduct in New England, 1650 to uh, 1750. The uh, book is uh, just out uh, now. It's published by Ashgate, is that correct? Yes, and actually it'll be out next month. And let me ask you a little bit about uh, about yourself. Um, you uh, have indicated a couple of times you grew up in New England. Yes, I did. And my father was a teacher. We lived on a couple of different school campuses and in Massachusetts. So that was a part of my life. But I also thought of Maine as home because that was where my grandparents lived. And my grandparents in Small Point, Maine, were very much a core part of my life. Mm-hmm. So when people ask me where I'm from, I say Maine and Massachusetts. Okay. And maybe go back to the book for a moment. I don't know a lot about it, but I did see in one of the write-ups I read about the the book, you talk about uh, a settlement in Maine. Uh, I mean, just briefly, I mean, it was the uh, treatment of sexual misconduct there different from um, Essex in Massachusetts? There were some differences 
between the two of them. Maine's an interesting case. It was an independent colony, and one of its early governors was a man named Thomas Gorges, who was a cousin to Ferdinando Gorges, who never comes to North America, but was a major player in establishing Maine as a colonial interest for England. And Ferdinando Gorges is sent over in the early 1640s to establish a legal system for Maine, to work on a political system for Maine. And he sends a letter to a man named Roger Bernard, who, by the way, is Roger Williams' father-in-law, in which he's writing about what sort of government and what sort of legal system he wants in Maine. And he says that for the civil we steer as near as possible to the course of England, which is a phrase that really struck me and actually made its way into the full title of my book, which after the in New England 1650 to 1750 ends with steering toward England. And so Thomas Gorges makes it very plain. He wants to model civil law in Maine on English law. He also, in that same letter, and this is why I think it's significant, this was written to Roger Williams' father-in-law, says that he wants to allow liberty of conscience in terms of religion. He wants a colony in which you can be whatever religion you so choose to be. Now, how far he would that would have been stretched is unclear, but it is true that Maine was tolerant of having Anglicans in the colony, which is relatively rare in New England, and we know there are Quakers, we know that there are some Puritans, and so this is this very early vision for Maine that begins to play out in its legal system. However, Ferdinando Gorges dies, and Massachusetts takes over Maine, mm-hmm. and so Maine comes under the Massachusetts legal structure and political structure in the 1650s and 1670s. And where I really saw that change playing out in terms of the sexual misconduct trials is this question. If you were putting somebody on trial for sexual misconduct, what legal terminology do you use? The older trials in England in the 16th century often use very colorful terms. The most common of these, which is very odd-sounding to a contemporary ear, is incontinency. If you were put on trial for incontinency in the 16th century, you are being, in essence, put on trial because you can't control yourself sexually. And this usage really disappears in the English trials in the late 1500s. But Maine uses it very consistently. Most of the early sexual misconduct trials in Maine are for incontinency charges rather than fornication, which is becoming the more common term. Essex County used incontinency and fornication interchangeably in the early years. Rhode Island, another of the places I looked at, almost never uses it. But Maine almost exclusively uses incontinency until the mid-1670s when incontinency completely, almost overnight, disappears from the sexual misconduct trials and is replaced by fornication. And the thing that struck me about that is Maine goes from this very colorful phrase, which is incredibly vague. There's a trial which is, in essence, a rape trial, in which they say it's incontinency. There's a trial in which there is 
a minister who has managed to get one woman pregnant and is carrying on with another woman, and both of these women are wed to other men, and he gets tried for incontinency. And there's uh, actually the first sexual misconduct trial in Maine was an incontinency trial for a man who'd gotten his father's servant pregnant. And the thing, as I've looked at all those trials, is I think the justices liked the vagueness of the term. Okay. And I'm, I'm sorry, Abby, uh, interesting story, but we are just about out of time. Abby Chandler uh, joins us, a history professor at the University of Massachusetts. Uh, she is author of the book Law and Sexual Misconduct in New England, uh, 1650 to 1750. It's published by Ashgate. Abby, thank you very much for joining us, and you have a good oh, you're day. Quite welcome.